0: Today I'm talking to Stuart Stubbs, who is the founder, editor and occasional writer for Loud and Quiet. Could you tell me how and why you started it and what was it like in the early days?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I started the magazine, it was 15 years ago now, which is quite, makes me feel very old all of a sudden. It was in 2005 and it started as a home printed fanzine. I printed like 150 copies of the very first one. And the reason I did that, I guess, was, I mean, I'd left university and I didn't really want to just get a job that I didn't want. So I, I signed on whilst I worked out what the hell I was going to do. And I just started making a fanzine for fun, essentially, um, at home. And um The reason for it, I guess, was because there wasn't actually that many music magazines around at that point. There's kind of more now, even though everyone, you know, tends to think that print is dead and it's dying out. But back then there wasn't that many. There was a, like, they were mainly newsstand ones and they all featured a lot of really kind of established artists. A lot of people were featuring Oasis and The Killers and, you know, just bands that had been around for a little bit, I guess. So I wanted to start a magazine that, had a different person on the cover each time and each time it was someone new that you'd never heard about and it was kind of a discovery thing about new music and finding out giving giving a voice to the new independent artist essentially that was the original thing um as well as giving me something to do and hopefully give me a career if i could at some point turn it into a job that could pay my rent Could you tell me a bit about the first issue? What did you include in it? Yeah, so the first issue looked terrible. I had no... Um, I had absolutely no experience in, in any, any side of it. I'd never written a review. I'd never written... I mean, I'd written, you know, essays at school and university and things like that. But I hadn't written any kind of music writing. I just loved music. I just wanted... You know, I wanted to be around music and I thought it'd be great to... And I loved magazines. I liked reading other types of magazines and the design aspects and all of that sort of thing but I'd never done any of those things and I wrote the first issue I wrote the whole thing in fact the first you know few issues I probably just wrote the every single word in it and i designed it and i worked out you know where to distribute it and how to i mean that didn't take much working out i used to just sneak into record shops and leave them on counters and things like that um but in terms of like the making of it yeah i just gave it a go it was extremely diy um it, it as a result it was bad it was really rubbish I Had hundreds of spelling mistakes some bands that are very questionable now um and, but I think I was just like naive enough to think it was great. And that, that confidence of youth to just think, oh, this is, you know, and I put so much hard work into making this rubbish thing. It took so long to make it look even that good that I kind of kidded myself. I think that it was, um, you know, a good thing. So I didn't feel as ashamed to give it to people as I probably would now. Um So, yeah, I was just, yeah, I had no experience. I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing and I just slowly... Got better at doing it at, at, at doing it by just doing it by just practicing it and trying to make the next one a bit better than the one before. Essentially, so you had the confidence to put it out there. Uh, was it well received? And how did you
0: feel after you'd heard some feedback?
1: Yeah, I can't. I can't quite remember. I mean, my friends were all very supportive and said it was really great, even though it wasn't. My mum was, of course, very supportive and said it was great, even though it wasn't. In terms of people out. Out there that picked it up. I didn't really know who had picked it up, but what Ed put in in the issue, in the back cover, was a little advert that said, "If you want to write for this," uh, I called it a magazine, even though it was very much not a magazine. It was a very much a fanzine, but I called it a magazine to try and give it this air of importance. And I said, "If you want to write for this magazine and be involved in this, then here's the email address and get in touch." And I think maybe one or two people did maybe from that very first one. And I think that was probably enough of a reason to do another one. And also I think I just enjoyed it so much that I didn't really mind that it was, that I was writing it all. I kind of just saw that as like, well, that's fun. And I I saw the whole thing as just this fun project. I was slightly delusional that I thought it was going to turn into something, um, which was probably misplaced, even though it it did. But, you know, I, I kind of thought, oh, I'll keep doing this because then it will eventually turn into something. Um, But it was just the enjoyment of it, I think. And maybe like one or two people. I can't remember who the first person, it might have been Sam Walton who still writes for us. It might have been a few people that no longer write for us. But some people did get in touch straight away to that advert, which is quite incredible because um, there was only 150 copies. I maybe gave out 50 of those to my close friends um so and maybe 50 got thrown in a bin maybe so maybe 50 people saw the very first one you know so the fact that anyone one of those people responded to that advert is the odds are are really really insane
0: You now do a podcast of your own called Midnight Chats and you're talking to a lot of the musicians and other creatives that you would have usually featured in print. When you started out the magazine, did you ever think you'd be meeting these people face to face?
1: Good question. I think, well, we did, Greg and I, who host that podcast, like, uh, you know, we do one each rather than together. We take turns hosting it. We did do a podcast. We used to live together in maybe 2000 and nine so before like podcasts were around then in a real infancy way and then they went away and then they came back in the way that they are like kind of huge now right but back then we did do a podcast it wasn't really a podcast it was us talking nonsense in our front room and playing songs and we put it on our website and you could only really stream it on the website because we thought that would get around any kind of um, copyright law because we were playing music on it um and so we did that for a little bit and then we just stopped doing that because, you know, we had about three people come into our website and listening to it. So then, but then podcasts vanished. And then when they came back this second time, maybe about five years ago, I think we started the Midnight Chats podcast four or five years ago. And it was quite early on in this kind of big wave of podcasts. And we didn't really have any kind of idea again this is going to be a recurring theme of my conversation is that we don't know what we're doing. um, But we just, uh, we, I think we just had this idea of like, why don't we just interview uh, musicians? We'll just do what we do in the mag and we'll just do it here on a podcast and we'll just see what happens with that. And I think the thing that we've been lucky with is that through the magazine and and the people that we know through doing the magazine and like the record labels and the PRs, we do have access to these people that, you know, some, a lot of people, if you were starting a podcast from total scratch, might struggle to do, to, to get certain people, you know, a certain level of, artist so we had that on our side which was really great and people were willing to give us a chance even though we didn't really know what it was um and that's kind of just grown over time i think the idea essentially the idea behind it was that we we called it midnight chats because we wanted it to feel like those kind of conversations that happen once you've come back from the pub that are really fluid and just kind of nonsense conversations or can be at least they can go off on tangents they can be about anything it's not just us ramming through questions about their new album and I think that's the thing that essentially artists and people that listen to it have responded to the most is that as you say like it's a very relaxed feel to it we don't kind of you know they're not necessarily there to just sell something they' we're just there having a conversation it's being recorded and I they're the podcast that I love the most you know like the adam buxton podcast being a prime example of just this rambling chat between two people that you've kind of just feel like you're eavesdropping on and you're part of um so i think that's the that's what we aimed for and i think we're kind of eventually have got there yeah do
0: you ever find that there are people that you get sat there in front of you ready to interview and they don't quite get the vibe of it and you have to have you ever put one out, thought, and thought that was nothing? That wasn't what I hoped for at all. And I, um, I'm a bit frustrated with the person for not buying into the feel of the podcast.
1: Yeah, I, I think it does happen sometimes, not very often, because of the type of people that we we feature. The type of artists that we feature in and the mag, which are mainly independent people, but we do we have had some like really big um, major label artists and they are just trained in a way to stick to the party line of what they're there to sell they they are this is a you know it is a press opportunity and of course it is that for like the independent artists as well but they're just not as drilled in it because they don't necessarily go to um a course on how you talk to the media which does happen at like major some major labels will you know their artists will kind of go through the system of this is what you say when you go to an interview and those people are sometimes they tend to get into it as you get going and realize that oh maybe I don't have to be as by the book on this but they also tend to think Uh, you get the impression that they think you're trying to trip them up or make them say something that you're going to then take to a tabloid newspaper because they don't necessarily know who we are or what we do or the way we do things or our ethics as a, as a company and as a a publication. So they kind of think you're trying to stitch them up sometimes. Mm. Um, But they tend to, it is few and far between I must say, but sometimes it does feel like hard work and you kind of think, well, this is, going to be quite a boring list of people. (laughs)
0: Because I just, I'm looking down the list of people you've spoken to, they're, you know, like UK based you know, alternative people on there. You've got like, people like Graham Cox and from Blur and like Foles and all these people that are just like more or less household names I'd say, but you know, the top of their game, but in in the UK so they probably get the vibe of it. But then yeah, I can't really imagine someone like Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth who's been famous for like 40 years or something and is probably sick of press sitting down and just be like yeah you know what I'm just going to be super candid and talk about my I don't know it's sort of was that something that is it UK based people who are a bit more comfortable or is there just, is it not really it's
1: kind of like, I think sometimes you know a lot of the American ice kind of do get it actually and I think they're a bit more maybe kind of you know it depends where they're from in the States, but you know, some Americans, some people in the States and Americans generally are kind of upbeat people and they kind of want to get involved and they want, you know, they want to, they want to, they want you to like them. So they're kind of on, on board with it. Um, Some of them don't necessarily get some British humor, but generally speaking, it kind of just depends. Yeah. There's not necessarily like a, geographical difference to them someone like kim gordon was actually that was the last one that i did i did it just as lockdown was kind of taking off i think it was just you know a week before lockdown and um it was amazing because as you say she's been famous for 40 odd years and she's so unbelievably cool and i was quite nervous to meet her because (laughs) I know that she also is not a fan of doing interviews because she's been doing them for 40 years. And I was like, oh, you kind of feel a bit like, I'm sorry, a bit apologetic. Like, I'm sorry, sorry, you're doing this. Sorry, this is how you're spending your next hour. But she was great because she is, because she's done it all. So she doesn't really care and she doesn't have to stick to a party line. She's not bothered by that sort of stuff. So she was actually really like open and and relaxed. It just sometimes takes people... Five or ten minutes for them to realise what we are, or you know the way we do things, and that we're actually just we are. It is just a relaxed conversation, and they can relax, and it's not a grilling in any way. It's a pretty
0: good test to find out what people are like, isn't it? That kind of thing, and I think it's always. I'm always really let down to hear that someone I'm a fan of is really difficult in person. That really takes the edge off what they do. I want. I want to believe that people I like with people or you know you sort of relate to music or literature or whatever it is that you're talking about and you want to believe that you relate to them because you get on with them or they see the world in the same way or something like that don't you
1: yeah definitely and it can totally just ruin years and years of of you loving something if you meet someone and they're you know a bit difficult um it hasn't happened to me very often it's happened to me a couple of times and i've and i've um It doesn't really matter how much... I mean, different people, I guess, deal with this disappointment in different ways. But for me, it doesn't matter how much I tell myself. Maybe they were just having a bad day. Maybe, you know, maybe (laughs) something... And of course, like, that's completely legitimate, isn't it? Like, everyone has a bad day. And people giving interviews all the time, they're expected to just be really nice to every single person. And of course, they can't. And you kind of think, maybe I was just unlucky. But it still eats away at you. And next time you go and listen to that record, you're like they were an idiot and that is a shame because
0: i think you know writing a magazine as a music fan and getting to interview people face to face you're really putting yourself at risk of meeting heroes and realizing that they're terrible people or something like that aren't you <laughs> yeah so, absolutely. yeah um i hope that doesn't happen too often for you and you haven't tainted your music taste by hearing that these people are just no far not really kind of cynical about things it's yeah i hope that hasn't happened too much for you
1: no it hasn't really i've got i've been I've been pretty lucky to be honest. And I also think I'm quite sensitive to it. So if there was anyone left who I hadn't met who I think's incredible, I would probably not do it. I would probably rather somebody else meet that person that I love than risk them being cruel to me. Because yeah. also, the thing is about meeting anyone famous or anyone that you admire that does something that you love. Is that I personally feel it can never go well enough, right? It can never be what you want it to be because even if you get on really well and they're really lovely and they say all the right things to you and you leave and that's a re- and it's a really nice experience, there's still part of you that is disappointed that you're not now best friends they're not going to call you tomorrow and you're not going to hang out you're not going to go around for dinner
0: Hmm. Um, they're never going to invite you to join the band
1: exactly exactly yeah that's true and that was something that when i was at university i did work experience at nme back in the day and then i worked at nme when i when i around the same time that i started the magazine for a couple of years and a, a guy there An incredible guy called Pat Long, he told me, and I'll never forget it. He said that you, one of the things that you need to know, he didn't say it in this way, but it was just in conversation. He basically made the point that however much you think you're friends with a band, you're never one of the band. You're always, you're never going to be part of the band. So you're not as close to them as you kind of want to be. So don't expect to be. And I've never forgotten that because it's, yeah, it's completely true. As you say, like, they're never going to, they're this gang. You're never going to be part of that. So there's the defeatist in me kind of thinks, well, why even meet them? Why even try? If we're not going to be best friends, let's just forget it. Um, Which is, you know, which is my own issue, I think. The reality of being in a band, I've come to realize I think is quite bad. I always thought I'd. Wa- I always wanted to be in a band when I was a kid, when I was growing up and a teenager. But I. D- I think it's. It's. It, there's a lot of elements of it that are really boring and horrible. I think mm. until you become the size of Coldplay, there's a lot of schlepping, <laughs> sh- schlepping around in venues and like drinking bad beer and a lot of those. You know, and falling out with the other people that you started loving it with. So um it is you know, the best. fact that there's
0: a stereotype about bands writing albums about how difficult it is being famous. Yeah, you know, there's loads of like albums whinging about being in the limelight and how kind of case in point of it not being as all it's cracked up to be. I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Reading about your magazine online, you've got like a list of sort of eight or ten. Things that you are trying to achieve with your magazine, with your writing, and I've noticed on there you've got some about gender balance and some about um, including people from the LGBTQ community and that kind of thing, which yep. has always been an important thing. But in 2005, was not forefront in people's minds. So. Mm-hmm. How have your aims in that way kind of changed since you started? Did you have a, a set list of rules of things you were trying to achieve when you started out? Or is that something that came later?
1: We, we didn't necessarily, especially because it was me, only me working on it. I think it was that list actually that you mentioned, it's on If anyone wants to read it, it's on, if you go to our website, it's on the about page. And it's also is it on the contact page it's on the about page definitely um it's like eight points as you say alex that kind of lists what we kind of stand for i guess and we only put that up we only actually put that on the site maybe a month ago um because we realize like these are the things that we have always obsessed over and and we just bear them in mind whenever we're creating anything when we when we're making a new series of the podcast we try to make sure That there's half the guests are are female artists you know we try to make sure that there are people from different ethnic groups that we're interviewing and and all of these things are things that we think about and we hope it comes across in what we do for people that have you know been with us and noticed it we're hoping people are noticing it as we go along but we realized um especially with the black lives matter movement well We posted some things about that and our support for it, obviously. And then I thought, well, we should probably put this list of the... We should probably tell people more about the way we think and the way we approach things and just make it a bit more explicit and put it out there to tell people this is what we're trying to do. Um, It also means that we can be held account on it. It means that people can like call us out if we're not doing it. It Mm -hmm. kind of polices us in a way. And it's just something that I suppose I mean to answer your question of obviously things have changed a lot since two thousand and five I think it was it's just something that has you know adapt uh, just gradually without almost noticing it just adapted over the years of just realizing that these issues are there and they need to be addressed and we need to be it is our responsibility now as an established publication, albeit a small one, to play our part in in changing these things. And we've always felt it and it's just kind of been a you know these these um kind of issues are ones that they become hot topics that there's like a tipping point it seems with all of them. You know, the Me Too movement kind of did a great thing in kind of blowing the lid off a lot of things and i suppose as those things happen it makes you you, we just a constant i'm personally think that we should just always be readdressing what we're doing are we doing everything we can to support the causes that we believe in and we should just be reflecting that in and as more issues become more and more prominent and we learn of more things ourselves and we we stop being blind to certain issues we'll add those to the list and we'll try our best to to, you know, change things in that way as well.
0: One thing that I personally don't like, and I've heard musicians and writers and things talk about it as well, is how one tiny piece of news will be turned into a full article and spread around the internet. You've got one tiny so-and-so said this on a radio show and then every blog will snap it up and drag that one tiny bit of information out to fill a full page just to get clicks on their website. Yep. (laughs) How do you prevent yourself from writing something just to get clicks? How do you stay... How do you keep your integrity? And why do you think that's important?
1: I mean, it's quite easy for us in a way because our team is too small to do that, even if we wanted to, even if we wanted to be writing 10 news posts a day about all those little things that you mentioned, which I completely agree with. It's just kind of noise out there, just like click fodder. Um, we, even if we had the time to do it and we, we, like, even if we had the people to do it, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't do that. But the reality is that we don't. It's not even an option for us. There's, we're our team's too small. We're kind of making podcasts and the issue and we're writing longer articles anyway, so we don't have time for it. But I mean, I think it is just a case of what you want your blog to be. And I think it will die out because essentially um, websites are struggling Almost, I would say, more than physical publications now because of the fact that advertising, the advertising model of build a website, get loads of clicks, get loads of people going to it, and as long as you've got people viewing your site, loads of people will see that advert that's posted on there and you'll be able to sell that ad space and make loads of money out of that. It just doesn't exist anymore. It's not the way it works because of the rise of... Um, I've just written an article about this, sorry. So this is why it's quite dry and boring. But essentially, (laughs) the um, advertising is now mostly spent on social media because they can zero in on exactly who you want your product to be put in front of. And people just, companies just don't advertise on websites anymore to the extent that they used to. So it is really hard for you to, even if you're getting all those clicks and you're getting millions of people coming to your site you're still not going to make as much as you used to be able to make doing that and it's only going in one direction so i think it will die out where people will just realize that essentially this same news story that's being recycled on all the same websites is actually just not serving any it's not doing us any favors by doing it we should actually just use our time to write something else or do something else um that's the way i think it's going to go but as i say it's um it is quite boring, isn't it? <laughs> but, but but it's just the way it is, I think. If
0: someone subscribed to Loud & Quiet today in terms of content and as well as literally what they would receive in the post, what would they get?
1: So they will get... Um, you get our next six issues sent to your door, like the physical magazine that comes out every other month you'll receive those same issues you'll also receive the codes to read the digital issues online if you want to do that as well so you've always got it on your phone you receive we've just made some uh, throughout lockdown we made a 15 year anniversary fanzine which is like a homage to that very first issue I mentioned that I printed at home and did 150 copies of. It's kind of like a best bit of what we've been doing over the last 15 years. It was really fun to put that together and kept me busy over lockdown. So there's that. That's like a limited thing. There's a um, like a brass pin badge that's of our logo and there's a leather bookmark and then there's a lot of digital. So that's the physical stuff and then there's a lot of digital stuff that you get which is things like discount offers we give away vinyl each month in our like albums of the month um if you subscribe you get entered into that to win win the records of the month um Mm -hmm. we do playlists that only go to the subscribers so we're kind of building all of that stuff up actually since since lockdown has started offering kind of more to try and get more people to essentially subscribe to the mag um we call them memberships now but it's the same thing but like By signing up, you're getting all of this stuff. Cool. And we just just keep adding more and more bits to it. We're working on maybe a podcast that goes exclusively to the subscribers as well.
0: Okay, it's now time for you to choose your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem.
1: Ah, okay. My choice is a website, actually, called theroot.co, and it's set up by a guy called Jamal and a woman called Georgia, and it is a music site. But it's about essentially it's helping people get into the music industry in lots of different ways. They've got they do lots of interviews with people, giving um, advice on being if you want to become a radio plugger or you want to become a journalist or you want to become, um, you know, run a studio. It's all music related but it's just a really great resource in getting young people um into the music industry because it feels like such a um impenetrable industry a lot of the time you know, a lot of people think "Oh, how am i even going to get into the music industry and this gives you a lot of tools and advice for that so um that is my choice for who's flying the plane
0: Thank you. And listeners of this podcast can find the link to that in the description of this episode. So, Stuart, how can we find Loud and Quiet online and how can we keep up with what you guys do?
1: Cool. Well, we, our website is really simple. It's loudandquiet.com. Uh, that's got everything on there you need to, to know. It's got most of our content from our past um, issues, certainly from the last couple of years, we we relaunched the site a few years back, so there's some really old stuffs not on there. But it's got everything in there on there where you can order a copy, a single copy of the mag. You can sign up to that membership I was talking about. Um, it gives that list that we we spoke about of kind of what we stand for and our ethics as a publication. Um, we're also on social, all the normal social media nonsense. But all of those are linked from the website as well. So yeah, loudonquiet.com is the place for all of that stuff great thanks a lot for talking to me pleasure thank you Alex. i appreciate it